Hey there, my name is Gabe Coyle and I'm the campus pastor at Christ Communities downtown campus here. And actually today marks our nine year anniversary. It was nine years ago that everything was in the back of a car and we had our first Sunday morning gathering. And now here we are in a brand new facility that by God's grace we've been able to purchase and renovate and many are gathering together in celebration of God's good name and what he's done through Christ. So I just want to invite us to be praying together for what God might be doing through this new facility and through all the avenues of ministry that God has called us to as a faith community here at the downtown campus. And really, I want to invite you, yes, you at home, for this next week up till our ribbon cutting on November 1st to take time each day to pray for God to work through our little downtown campus. Pray that new people might come to know Jesus. People who are looking for a church home might find one here and that we all might grow in our understanding and depth and followership of the one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you do that? Take some time to commit every single day over this next week that God might work uniquely through this downtown campus in this new space here over the next nine years of our shared journey together. And with that in mind, I want to turn our attention now to our text. Now, we're going to be preaching through Revelation chapter 12 and 13. Before our time together, I'm going to be reading from Revelation chapter 13, the whole chapter. So hear God's word to us now. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth veiled as they followed the beast, or marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. 
Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear God, we come to you in prayer and we say thank you. Thank you that you have brilliantly revealed yourself through the revelation that you gave to John. And God, we ask that you would continue to give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Give us wisdom and understanding. Give us discernment on how to read apocalyptic literature to understand what John was seeking to communicate rather than get caught up in fanciful interpretations that lead actually to myopic understandings of your kingdom's work. So God, would you guide us now? We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name and by the power of his spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm curious. I want to ask a question. If you had to, can you tell a fake from the real thing? Can you tell a fake from the real thing? Because fakes are everywhere, aren't they? When I was in Chicago, I remember constantly being sold on the streets of Chicago a Folex. You know what a Folex is? A fake Rolex. On top of that, now there's probably not a week that goes by when I don't get an email from a bishop or senior pastor Tom Nelson from you know, a specific email address at christianpastor.net or something like that, where some, for some reason, this particular pastor, Tom Nelson, wants to talk with me about something discreetly. Don't mention it to anyone else, right? There's all sorts of fakes out there. And now there's a growing tech that's one of the greatest threats, and it's called a deep fake. And honestly, it's incredibly hard to tell the real thing from the fake. Interestingly enough, PBS Science did a little bit of an expose on this in their series Nova, where they take a look at deep faking. Let's take a look together. To help families refinance their homes, to invest in things like high-tech manufacturing, clean energy, and the infrastructure that creates good new jobs. You see, I would never say these things, at least not in a public address, but someone else would. Someone like Jordan Peele. And sort of learning to recreate that person's face by looking at the thousands of images over and over and over. <laughs> Like a lot more research than you would think would uh, would go into making a goofy video or something like that. Truly surprising for me. Um, yeah, I, I was just really surprised. I didn't do any after touching on that video. I was just using the technology that was available from the machine learning side. Now the technology is new, but the tactic isn't. Spiritual deep fakes are as old as sin. I mean, the serpent, all the way back in the garden, was faking as a benevolent caretaker. And one of Revelation's main warnings 
is that there are tons of Jesus deepfakes out there. And they can sound, they can look so close to the real thing, but the closer we get, we realize they're actually very far from the true Jesus. Now here's the deal. One of the greatest threats for our church as we start in this new space and as we think about a long legacy for what God has here in Kansas City, one of the greatest threats for our church is falling for a fake Jesus. Revelation chapter 12 through 13, it introduces to us a host of characters that do their absolute best to sound, act, to look just like Jesus. And at first blush, they look eerily similar. But the more you lean in, you, whirl, you realize that they're worlds apart. And right here, our greatest threat as a, a campus in a new place setting down new roots is not unbelief nor moral failure, although those, although those are important. Instead, it's following an almost Jesus. No matter how good this building looks, if we do that, it'll kill our church. It may have the same name, but it, it will be a different makeup, this almost Jesus. It may have the same promised ends, but it has a drastically different means. In Revelation, it helps focus our role, our calling to be a faithful witness. We began this journey last week, and today we're going to be speaking to and discipling away from false religion. And here's why. Here's our thesis for this morning. Because an almost Jesus is an absolute threat. An almost Jesus is an absolute threat. Another way to put this is an almost Christ is nothing more than an anti-Christ. And being duped here actually destroys in a way that only false religion can. It actually continues to promote a false Jesus and so robs from the glory of the true Jesus and his church. So today we're going to look at three insights to help us be immunized, immunized against falling for a fake. And as we seek to be faithful witnesses to the true Jesus, we're going to shine light on three insights from chapters 12 and 13 that help, will help prevent our church from being duped by a deep fake Jesus and so destructive religion. Sound like a plan? Okay, well let's walk through these together. Number one, here's the first insight we need to have. We are in a cosmic battle. This is important to understand, okay? If you look back to chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, we read, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. When you jump ahead to what we read together in chapter 13, verse 7, we read the beast then is allowed to make war on the saints on earth. You see, this isn't just a future battle to come. This is a battle being waged today. All of heaven and hell is waging war on earth. And in one sense, the victory has been won on the cross when Jesus declared it is finished. And yet in another very real sense, it has yet to be fully realized. And what we see in this cosmic battle here in chapters 12 and 13 is who and how these different characters are symbolically portrayed. So there's basically eight primary characters. Here they are. You've got the woman in labor. You've got a red dragon. You've got a male child born of the woman. You've got Michael and his angels, dragon, the dragon's angels, and the rest of the offspring of the woman. 
And then you've got two beasts, one out of the sea and one out of the earth. So let me give you a summary of these characters, okay? The first one are the divine characters. This is God. This is the male child who's actually representing Jesus, the, laying, the, the slain lamb, as well as the king of kings. The second category are the two sides of humanity. You've got the side of humanity that's for the lamb and the side of humanity that is against the lamb. And then you have this third category that we often discount or we want to ignore or at least try to forget. It's angels and demons. There are these intentional, intelligent, spiritual beings that are only visible. This is what's fascinating when they choose to be. Here Jesus actually then pulls back the curtain to help us see them more vividly. You have the dragon or the serpent. You have Michael and his angels. You have the dragon's angels. You have the beast of the sea and the earth. These angelic spiritual beings often go hidden in our materialistic world. You see, we have a modern Western bias towards the material with the scientific theory. And that social location and bias often blind us to the reality of the spiritual and what's often going, in, going on in the unseen realm. We have a hard time when Scripture pulls back the curtain on these sorts of things, and yet it's all over the pages of Scripture. If you go back to 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17, one of those early prophets, the prophet of Elisha, his servant is nervous about this giant enemy army that's coming their way. But Elisha, he's not nervous at all. And so he actually asks for God to reveal what he sees to his servant. We see in chapter 6, verse 17 of 2 Kings, Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. It's an astounding picture to think of all of these spiritual forces surrounding us in ways that we can't even see. And this isn't a rare occurrence in Scripture. Just remember, the angels come and they proclaim the entrance of God incarnate, the Son of God born to Mary. We see that angels actually minister to Jesus after his temptation. Angels declare his resurrection. If you go to letters like Jude and 2 Peter, these angelic beings are all over those pages. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 talks about our battle not being against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers that shape on a macro level the broader systems and structures that breed destruction rather than just flesh and blood people who stand right in front of us. It's a very different framework. And this isn't even unique to Revelation as we've seen. It's hinted at in the creation narrative in Genesis. It's continually pointed at throughout the, new, the Hebrew scriptures confirmed in the New Testament and it teaches it here in Revelation at the height and makes it more explicit and vivid in ways we have yet to see in other scriptures. Now, for some, when you begin to hear about these angelic beings or these demonic beings, it can feel like a barrier to faith, especially if you've been wrestling with the Christian faith broadly. And yet, simultaneously, more and more people, thoughtful folks, are tired of the myopic framework of materialism. And so turning to alternative belief systems, whether it be a Wiccan framework or neo-paganism and mysticism, and what this reveals for all of us as human beings is that we have this internal ache for more. We know there's got to be something more. 
Because we know that the way that worldviews and markets and cultural movements of destruction or cultural movements of life, whether it be racism or sexism or any sort of prejudice, seem to take on a life of their own that are, that are beyond even just the human beings that are perpetrating and being involved in these systems of destruction. That are beyond algorithms, they're beyond psychology, they're beyond just mere sociology. It's almost as if something is fanning the flame of destruction. Well, the same way that science helps explain how and why invisible winds blow to and fro on the earth seeking equilibrium. So the witness of scripture makes sense of these invisible, in, these invisible forces that impact life on a broader scale. You see, we are human beings, as human beings, are more, more robust, we need a more robust imagination to allow us to even begin to understand these things. I love the way Eugene Peterson says, what we need is a hearty infusion of imaginative red cells into the circulatory system of our faith. Because if we don't, if we don't include these biblical categories into how we see the world, and we disregard the supernatural realm, then two things are going to happen. One, other human beings become our enemy, and they are the ones we demonize. Because we have to blame somebody for the brokenness of the world. And it's a cruel assumption to view another person as exclusively responsible for the pain they've caused you or others. I mean, they've had, they had their part to play in it, for sure, and there should be accountability, but we as human beings never act alone. As Christians, we understand that we never act alone, but are empowered by the Spirit of God in certain trajectories. Number two, if we choose to disregard the supernatural realm, we actually open ourselves up to a vulnerability in being duped by an almost Jesus and a diabolical fake trinity of Satan, the false prophet, and the beast. Because if there's one thing we know about this evil one, about Satan, we know that the devil is a liar, right? And that leads us to our second insight. Our enemy is a faker. First, we are in a cosmic battle. But number two, our enemy is a faker. The Apostle Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 when he says that the evil one walks around faking as if he is an angel of light or an angel of truth. He tries to imitate Jesus' brilliance, but a fake is only, can only go so far. And anything other than the real Christ, remember, is nothing more than an anti-Christ. Here are a couple ways we see this deep fake on display where it's apocalypse revealed, okay? Look with me at the first beast and how it seeks to imitate Christ in chapter 13, 1 through 4. John writes, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? The beast here, the first beast, is faking it hard. He's pretending to be like Jesus. Like Jesus, this beast has a mortal wound that is healed, and the whole world marvels that even though he was good as dead, he came back 
to life. In the same way that Jesus died on the cross and then three days later rose again. But here's the difference. Instead of coming meek and like a weak lamb, this pseudo-Christ is a powerful beast. He uses his power, frankly, the way we would expect from a tyrant. He abuses his power. He brings destruction. He brings tyranny. He has multiple crowns, multiple heads. He's the king that people finally want, want someone who finally forces his way rather than going to a cross. A deep fake, but significantly different at his core. The second beast, this false prophet, looks this way. Let's look at how he's faking in chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performed great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Do you see the deep fake here? He tries to look like a lamb, like the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world, but he's not. He still speaks like a dragon. He performs signs and miracles like Jesus, but the difference comes in his words and who he calls the world to worship and drawing against and away from the one truly on the throne and the rightful lamb. Now we lead to another aspect of deception and it comes all the way at the end of chapter 13. It's probably the most well-known. It's very pop culture. It's this mark of the beast. Six, six, six. It's like... Even, even though, you know, we all have a bit of a superstition around this. It's like if you're in a high-rise hotel, don't get 666, you know. Um, you know, oh, no, this book landed open on page 666. It's like, ah, you know, there's all these ridiculous things that come around this number. We've got a whole host of ridiculous posters that coincide with this. It's fascinating, isn't it? And it makes you wonder, what is this all about, really? What's actually happening here? Well, as we've noticed, numbers have a symbolic function in the book of Revelation. And what we're going to come to see is that this is just another failed imitation attempt. You see, the number seven is the week of creation. It symbolizes completeness, fullness, goodness. And the number three is the number of God, thinking of the triune God and his deity. So 777 is complete goodness, complete perfection. And yet 666 never measures it's seeking to imitate, but never measure up. Now, most scholars agree that there's a use of geometria here, meaning like the letter A equals the number one, the letter B equals the number two, and so on. And depending on your math, you can actually spell the word beast or Nero, Caesar, and people have connected it to all kinds of unique conspiracies and to all kinds of modern-day figures, some who have since died, some who are still living. But the main idea that's seeking to be communicated here is that if you follow the beast, you will never know full humanity that only Jesus can provide. It never fully measures up, but it's a cheap imitation. When we look at Revelation chapter 7, verse 3, if we bounce back, what do we see about the people who belong to the Lamb? We hear the angel declare, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have what? 
sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. There is a sealing of God's people and there is a sealing of those on the beast who worship the beast. And those who worship the beast will never know life to the full. It will always come up short. You see, chapters 12 and 13, they're meant to equip us against these deceptive ploys of the evil one to know these fake imitations. And listen, no one enjoys being deceived. No one's like, oh, I'm going to choose deception right here, right now. Even as we talked about willful blindness last week, we look away because we believe it's actually the best life we can choose. And yet we fall for deception time and again. Now you may be thinking, there's no way I'm going to fall for the deception of the evil one in my life. This is just ridiculous. And maybe with the help of Revelation, we can be better equipped in that way. That's the point. But the deception, his deception, is a deep fake nonetheless. One of my favorite examples of this is the painting, The Temptation of St. Anthony by the 16th century artist Jen Wellens de Kock. There is this beautiful woman and she seems to be offering a gift, but just underneath the surface, it's a monster. You see, if you look a little bit closer, down at the foot, on this beautiful woman with this beautiful gown, there's a claw just sneaking out underneath the dress. And what John is doing in these chapters of Revelation is pulling off the robe of this gift-giving beauty to reveal actually the full monster who's underneath. You see, we can believe that everything evil in the world, whether it be racism, whether it be sexism, whether it be pride, greed, lust, inequality, is all because of human action alone. And listen, human beings have a part to play. And then we can believe that the idols of power, of violence, consumerism, comfort, sex, money, and ego make these promises similar to Jesus to fix and heal these issues, but at a cheaper cost, at least at the start. But behind all of these idols, behind all of this destruction, is a monster. Someone seeking the destruction of the world. We read in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, remember this, the great dragon, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them day and night before our God. This is the one who is orchestrating great destruction and pain. You know, Paul Spilsbury, in his book, The Throne, the Lamb, and the Dragon, brilliantly helps us here. He says, in the same way, the mark of the beast is a sign of loyalty and belonging not to God, but to the beast. And just as we should not interpret the seal of God as something visible to the naked eye, so we should not think of the mark of the beast as something that can be seen, or indeed even as a physical reality. It is a spiritual mark, an attitude, a mindset that shows compliance with the agenda and methods of the beast. So instead of looking for an explicit 666 or being afraid of a microchip or, you know, Apple Pay, we need to look for the implicit ways where we're in danger of falling for lies and fakes now. Sometimes they look like Jesus, they smell like Jesus, they may sound like Jesus, and we would culturally expect them to line up with our desires. But they're still very different from the true Jesus. Even at times they're promoted by leaders who proclaim Jesus' name. But that which is closest, but still not true or true to the full, will take you the furthest away. The best lies are always mixed with a healthy, healthy dose of truth. 
chapter 13, verse 18 reminds us. What does this call for? Not for prediction, not for trying to read certain newspaper clippings. This calls for wisdom, which leads us to our last insight. Look with me at Revelation chapter 13, verses 9 and 10. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Faithfulness to the true Jesus is crucial to endurance. And faithfulness, faithfulness is enduring and enduring is learning to spot the fakes. Enduring is learning to spot the fakes. They look and they sound so close. They're almost Jesus, but they're not quite Jesus and so a fake. This is crucial to enduring as a church. Understanding true belief, understanding true religion, understanding the true way rather than being duped by a fake. And Revelation thankfully equips us here. But how do we spot these fakes? Actually the same way that people check to see if money is counterfeit or fake, right? They hold it up to the light. Most counterfeit uh, experts can tell if a particular $10 or $20 bill is fake by holding it up to the light. When held up to the light, two things become visible. It's a small security thread with some micro printing that goes from the top to the bottom of the bill. And there's also a particular watermark clearly recognizable in the light. Same when it comes to Jesus. The best is to hold up what others are presenting about Jesus and holding it up to the light of Scripture. Here are three ways to spot a fake, okay? Number one, if our view of Jesus forces us to discount certain biblical texts, we've got a fake. For example, are you encouraged to overlook collective texts as no longer relevant, but rather your focus is encouraged to only be about a you and Jesus salvation, period. I mean, do you see anything other than the me and Jesus salvation story as a distortion of the gospel? Then you've got a fake Jesus. This exclusivity and zeroing in only on individualism and individual faith is a fake Jesus because there are also collective and communal implications. Jesus and scripture broadly and not infrequently talks plenty about belonging to various groups. We belong to the church. That's also a very unique group, which is a part of the body of Christ. And we have inherent benefits for belonging to that group. There's also individual responsibility for belonging to a group. There's also positive and negative outcomes for belonging to a particular group. And if we miss that, it's an almost Jesus, but not quite and fully Jesus. Second, if our view of Jesus leaves us nearly faultless and leaves our opponents irredeemable, we've got a fake Jesus. You see, if your Jesus only leads you to associate with people like you, you've got a fake. Whether it's just people like in your political party or your race or your gender or your age group or your orientation, you name it, that's never been Jesus's MO. He's been calling together a people from diverse backgrounds to make up his body. And it's an almost Jesus because Jesus loves each of those particular groups, but not to keep them in silos. Number three, if our view of Jesus looks so much like us right now, such that if we actually took Jesus out of the equation, our world wouldn't change all that much, you've got to fake Jesus. If you've confused the American dream for the good life of Jesus and his kingdom, beware. 
If our functional hope is just to have a bigger home or a nicer car or a thinner body or more friends or a more secure retirement or a nice church building, then everything would be great, we tell ourselves. When in reality, we've missed it. If our framework for justice and how it is brought about has no influence from the complexity of justice, mercy, forgiveness, and humility from Jesus, then we've missed it. There are a lot of fakes, but behind every one of these fakes is an extraordinary monster seeking to destroy us. But you know what's even more astounding behind the real Jesus? is still a very real and powerful Savior who went to the cross to die for our sins and to die for the sin of the world. And he, in his resurrection, is making all things right and reconciling all things to himself. If you're willing to love him and get to know him for him, to actually study him with those who knew him best, walk with him by walking with others in community, surrendering to him personally, and be loved by and give love to him, if you're with him, then your name is inscribed in his book of life. Yes, we're in a cosmic battle. But the best the enemy can do is fake it. And his timeline for doing that is growing shorter by the day. Jesus is at the center of fighting, to fighting well, against these foes personally and systematically. So let's together focus on the real Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection. I mean, this has and always will be the center of the church, of any church that endures. And together we can be that kind of place. We can be that kind of people. Because if we don't, it doesn't matter how beautiful this new building is. It doesn't matter what kind of furniture we get. It doesn't matter how many people even show up on a Sunday. Because without this, without the true Jesus, we're nothing more than a fake. There are a lot of churches who have really glorious buildings, who have massive wealth, but they miss Jesus. Sure, they've gained massive influence, but they've lost their soul. We want to seek the real Jesus. Let's commit together right now, again, this place, that this people to him and to him alone. Let's do that together, shall we? Let's pray. Our great God, we say thank you. This building is yours. As your people, we are yours. We are not our own. We are not a group of individuals who gather together. We are a people who have personally surrendered to you and yet find our identity as the church together as a following community centered on the person and work of Christ. God, this building is yours, and we ask that your spirit would indwell us and work among us in this place, that it would work through this place, that Holy Spirit, you would bring about lives changed, that people who don't know you would come to know you, those who don't have a church home would find a family here, that this would not be a place to attend, but a family to belong to, that God, by the power of your spirit, you would do something truly astounding in this place that would reverberate through these walls to the surrounding community for the flourishing of downtown broadly, and so the broader Kansas City metro. 
God, we ask that as our homeless brothers and sisters join us, they would taste and see the beauties of the gospel in both tangible and spiritual ways. We ask, Lord, that as people walk by and drive by, they would have actually a different sense or a feeling that something beautiful is happening here that would lure them in, that they would hear the gospel and surrender to you and know the life and life abundant that only you can provide. God, this is your place. We dedicate it to you. We rededicate ourselves to you and your mission. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth in this little space as it is in heaven. That's our longing. Not to feel great, not to now sit back in comfort, but to now have a greater facilitation of your mission in this space. That's what we long for. May it be so. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things and by the power of the Spirit working here, and among us, and throughout the city. Amen, amen, and amen. You know, firsts and lasts are pretty powerful moments throughout Scripture and in our lives. And today we're going to take communion in this place together in some way, shape, or form for the first time. And so I want to invite you to remember what's at the core, what's at the cornerstone of this building, of this people. And that's the life, the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And his death is brilliantly on display through common broken bread, which represents his broken body, and common juice, which represents his bloodshed for the forgiveness of our sins. If you're there and you're a follower of Jesus and you have some friends and family around you, I'd encourage you to gather some elements together, some bread and some juice, and to partake in remembrance of him. And so allow the gospel to be proclaimed to your senses of taste, touch, and smell. But before we do, let's remember what's been handed down to us, shall we? For the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever you're ready take and eat.